All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome back to You Be the Judge. This series puts you in the driver's seat of Jewish law and law in general. Your considerations, your deliberations, your decisions um, will be rendered, will be explored in this series tonight. We have an unbelievable discussion, four or five different case studies that will challenge your way of thinking, how you think, how you feel, and uh, I think you'll walk away with some really cool insights. All right, before we begin the actual class, I want to take a, a moment and recognize and thank our generous co-sponsors, Eve and Jake Bogan, Howard and Ellen Feinsand, and Vlad and Marina Rabinovich. Thank you so much for your sponsorship for this course, and thank you all for being part of it. Okay, tonight's class, I have called Finders Keepers. Finders keepers. We all know the famous, um, uh, the famous uh, schoolyard rhyme: "Finders keepers, losers weepers." Right? That's the way it goes. Finders keepers, losers weepers. The question is, does that hold validity in a court of law? Can you say "finders keepers, losers weepers"? I, we said that as kids. It should work, right? It is what it is. I found it. I got it, or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Do we need to give back sometimes what it is, excuse me, that we find? So that is the question. So what I'm gonna do now is start off with our first case. The case of the righteous rabbi. The case of the righteous rabbi. Um, I am going to share my screen with you. This is a two-minute video clip. Sit back, relax, and enjoy The Righteous Rabbi. Hold on. All right. First of all, thumbs up if you can see this video before it plays. Thumbs up if you can see it. Yes. Fantastic. That means we're good. Here we go. The old lesson about shopping is buyer beware. You don't always get what you paid for, but a Canadian rabbi has a story that goes beyond that. He got a lot more than he paid for. A used desk he bought on Craigslist contained a secret treasure, and the best part of the story is what he did with it when he found it. Shirley Angle has the story. If you've ever bought something on Craigslist, you know you don't always get what you bargained for. But Rabbi Noah Muroff and his wife never imagined they'd hit the jackpot when they bought this used desk for 150 bucks. The desk didn't fit into this office by a fraction of an inch. So they took it apart. Behind the drawers, there's this plastic bag, like a shopping bag I'm talking about. In that bag, I could already see through the bag, there's, it looks like a $100 bill. A whopping $98,000 worth of bills. My wife and I sort of, uh, you know, looked at each other and we said, we can't keep this money. So they called Patty, the woman who sold them the desk, to arrange a return of the cash. She told them she had inherited the money after both her parents passed away. Too distraught to do anything with it, Patty stashed it in one of the drawers and lost track of it. She never would have known if they had quietly kept the loot. Son sitting there. In Murov's hometown of Ottawa, his parents are proud, but not surprised. We really feel blessed to have children like ours who have grown up to be such, such great people. I guess honesty is the best policy, I, as simple as that. Though this actually happened back in September, the rabbi only decided to go public this week. 
and he sparked a media frenzy. People really don't trust banks anymore these days. So what would you have done? I guess uh, I would have returned the money. <laughs> you say that hesitantly. Maybe wait it out, see if they ask for it back. Yeah, see, see if something <laughs> happens before you start spending it. Find their keepers. <laughs> Patty gave the rabbi and his wife a card and a $3,500 reward for their honesty, plus the 150 bucks they paid for the desk. An even better bargain than they thought. I think it's sort of um, indicative a little bit of the society that we live in, that there's so many people out there that really wouldn't return the money, and because of that, it's so shocking that someone actually did. A real-life lesson for their four children about doing the right thing. Shirley Engel, Global News, Ottawa. All right, my friends, you saw the video. 98K in a desk. Unbelievable, right? You bought a desk on Craigslist. You take it apart. You got to move it into a room. Behind the drawers, you see a bag of $98,000. So what do you do? What do you do? All right, I don't want to ask personal questions, but what should one do? All right, let's ask it more like right third party. All right, by raise of hands, I don't have this as one of the poll questions. I have a bunch of poll questions tonight. Don't worry, we're going to be very interactive. But by raise of hands, who thinks... Who thinks that the money should be returned? Who thinks the money? Who thinks the money should be kept? No, no, just me. I mean, I put my hand up for both of them. Okay, all right. Everyone's being honest. Look at you guys. Okay, but can you kind of uh, you know when when they did the street interviews? So one person said, "Sure, I would return it." Uh, like kind of that. And then the other one's like, well, maybe we just hold on to it until somebody says something. And the third guy's like, no, finders keepers. Like, of course not. I'm, it's my money. Right. So here we have like different approaches to this concept. This is just a way to kind of get into the conversation or get into this train of thought. The question when it comes to found property is whose property is it? Does it belong to the person who bought the desk? Does it belong to the person from whom the desk was bought? How do we understand the notion of ownership and the, and the, the, the notion of treasure finds, accidental windfalls? How do we parse this in Jewish law? So, well, how do we parse this in the law? We're going to look at two different systems, U.S. law and Jewish law based on Talmudic principles and ideals. And as we'll see tonight, there, there are very different systems of law that have very different um, angles of understanding and perspe perspectives of understanding on these cases. So to get into this in our discussion, we're going to talk about, a, we'll, we'll explore a case study. Case study number one is Corliss v. Wenner, or the way I like to refer to it as the... Uh, what, what, what would be a good alliteration? Um, the treasure of the Rolling Stone. Treasure of the Rolling Stone. The reason why I said this is because you may know Jan Wenner, who is the, uh, one of the main subjects of the first case study. He is the co-creator of the Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame, but perhaps more, more uh, famously is the co-creator of the Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone magazine. So this dude is a Jewish guy, Jewish guy from New York, Jan Wenner, 
And here's the story about some treasure found on his property. This will blow you away. Okay, I'm going to share my screen with you. And we're going to move back to 1996 to the state of Idaho. All right, I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump right in. Okay, can you guys see that? Let me just double check. Yes, 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 yes. Thumbs up. All right, perfect. Uh, let's ask for a volunteer to read. Um, okay. Yeah, mom, you want to say something? No? Okay. Um, Steve Horowitz, if you don't mind, please read case study. Oh, hold on one second. One second, one second. I'm pretty sure I probably did the same thing as last time. I optimized it for video. I've learned my lesson. You see that? A week later, a week smarter. Um, let's try this one more time. Okay, this, is it scrolling now when I do that? Yes? All right, beautiful. Uh, yes. All right, Steve, take it away. Accidental treasure, Corliss v. Wenner, case number one. In the fall of 1996, Jan Wenner hired Anderson Asphalt Paving to construct a driveway on his ranch in Blaine County. Larry Anderson, the owner of Anderson Asphalt Paving, and his employee, Gregory Corliss, were excavating soil for the driveway when they unearthed a glass jar containing paper wrapped rolls of gold coins. Anderson and Corliss collected, cleaned, and inventoried the gold pieces dating from 1857 to 1914. The coins themselves weighed about four pounds. Anderson and Corliss agreed to split the gold coins between themselves, with Anderson retaining possession of all the coins. At some point, Anderson and Corliss argued over ownership of the coins, and Anderson fired Corliss. Anderson later gave possession of the coins to uh, Winner in exchange for uh, indemnification on any claim Corliss might have against him regarding the coins. Now Corliss is suing Winner, claiming the coins are his because he found them. Who has a right to the coins? Okay, this went to the Idaho Court of Appeals in 2001. I, there's a lot of names here. There's Wenner, there's Anderson, there's Corliss. I'm going to say this over my own words, hopefully to simplify it and to reiterate it. The homeowner is Jan Wenner. He's also a pretty famous dude, Rolling Stone Magazine, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, etc. Jan Wenner, okay? He's the homeowner. Larry Anderson owns the construction company or the asphalt paving company. Gregory Corliss is his employee, all right? So Anderson is the boss. Corliss is the worker. Corliss and Anderson unearth gold coins on Wenner's property. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. This guy, who's a pretty wealthy dude, randomly has treasure buried in his property. He doesn't even know about it. Treasure buried in his property. And now Anderson and Corliss, the boss and the worker, now they're fighting over it. Anderson takes the coins. Corliss wants it. Anderson fires Corliss. And at, that, at some point, Anderson's like, like you know what? I, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to give this, the coins to Wenner. I'm going to be done with it. I'm finished. I want to wipe my hands from it. So now he gave the coins to Wenner. Wenner has the coins. Corliss now sues Wenner. Corliss is the worker. Wenner is the homeowner, owner of the property. Corliss is suing Wenner, claiming that he found them. He gets to keep them. Finders, keepers. Wenner has them in his possession. Corliss is saying, though, it's mine. I found it. It's not yours. It's buried treasure on your property. It's not yours. So who has the right to the coins? So before we get to that question, who has the right to the coins, I want to share a poll. 
Okay? Here's how. Let's, let's stand in. All right, here's a poll, my friends. Here's how we roll. I have nine poll questions. We'll see if we can get to them all. We have a lot to cover tonight. Okay, I'm going to put up the first poll in three, two, one, launch. Okay, how many potential claimants are there in the winner case? How many parties are trying to grab these coins? How many parties are vying for the coins? Let's go. I'm going to give about 20 seconds on this. Simple question, how many parties are claiming the coins? One, two, three, or four? Uh, sorry, not how many people are claiming, how many potential claimants are there? There you go, I, I, I phrased the question, potential. How many potential claimants? Okay, five, four, three, two, one. All right, we're ending the poll. I see most people said three, some people said two. All right, let's, let's discuss, let's discuss, um, um, okay, let's discuss our findings. Who are the potential claimants here? Let's go, unmute, unmute, jump in. Who are the potential claimants? Give me names. Corliss and Winner. Corliss. Corliss and Winner. Corliss and Winner. Who are the potential claimants? Who else could have a claim? Potentially, who else could have a claim? Anderson. Anderson, Anderson. good, because he owned the company. And, sorry? Anderson no. gave up. He gave up. Right. Potential claimants. Right. Good, good, good. I phrased the potential. Oh, I find it's fine. Both are right. Two or three. But one second. Is there anyone else that might have a claim? Potentially. Potential. Oh, yeah, the owner. The, Hold on one second. Barrier. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> Say it again. I, I didn't hear. What, what, was, what was said? Morris, the owner. No. Okay. One second. One second. Yeah, go ahead. No. Okay. All right. So we have a we have here a potential of four parties. Okay. We have potentially four parties. I said no one. No one put four, but I'll tell you four. Now the truth is you got a potential more, but even There's in this case, five. Five. Who else? Who's the? Yeah. Who is? Whoever owns the corporation that held the contract to actually do the work on the property. Okay. Because good. Good. Okay. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Good. So we have a, we have we have multiple parties. So let's just go through all of them because this will all be relevant tonight. If we were thinking kind of like outside the I don't know if it's outside the box. We're thinking big. We could come up with a number of different parties. Number one, we have Wenner, who is the homeowner. He owns the property upon which or in which or within which the coins were found. So we have the homeowner Wenner. We have the fellow who owns the company. Right, that did the con that did the contracting work. We have the worker who actually perhaps did the actual digging. It's not clear as to who did the digging. If they both did the digging, Anderson and Corliss. Either way, there's Anderson who owns the company. Corliss. There's also mention of whoever got the contract for the for the excavation. Right, whoever put that contract. Maybe there's a contractor, somebody else who wasn't even on the site. Maybe they could also stake a claim in this. And then, of course is party number four, number five, which we have not spoken about, which, was, which didn't show up in the case, which is the original party that placed the coins in the property. Now, we don't know who that is necessarily, but theoretically, that is a potential claimant. If someone showed up, think about it, if someone showed up and said, hey, my Zadie, my elder Zadie, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, whatever it is, is the one who put the property there Right? Is the one who put the coins in the property. Well, that would perhaps be a claim or a claimant in this case. Now, in this case specifically, 
Not talking about potential claimants. In this case, how many claimants at this point are there? There are only two. We have the homeowner, Wenner, and Corliss, one of the fellows or the fellow who dug them up. And Corliss is saying, finders, keepers, I found them. I got them. And Wenner says, nice try, bro. It's my house, my property. It's mine. Okay, so what does the court say? So what does the court actually say? So the Idaho court, Paskind, I'm kidding, Paskind is a Jewish term for rule, but the Idaho court, the Idaho court uh, of appeals ruled in 2001, their decision was that the, the coins belong to, who do you think? Who do you property think? Owner. Property owner. Excellent. Good. Property owner. Very good. That is what the court ruled. Now, why did the court rule that it belongs to the property owner? Let's read it inside. Let's read the decision inside. I have it right here, an excerpt from the decision. Um, hold on one second. Let me move my screen over. Okay, text number one. This is from Corliss v. Wenner. Let's ask um, Judy. If you don't mind, Judy, please read text okay. number one. Okay. Land ownership includes control over crops on the land buildings and appurtenances, soils and minerals buried under those soils. The average Idaho landowner would expect to have a depository interest in any object uncovered on his or her property. And certainly the notion that a trespassing treasure hunter or a hired handyman or employee could, could or might have greater possessory rights than a landowner in objects uncovered on his or her property runs counter to the reasonable expectations of present-day land ownership. Thank you very much. So we have a pr what I would say is a pretty reasonable argument, and that is that when you own land, there's a presumption. There's, a, there's an assumption here that, uh, that you own whatever is on the property. If you own the property, you own not only the land and above, you own anything that's underneath as well, right? Anything uncovered on his or her property, there's an expectation that it belongs to the Idaho landowner. That, that, that's the, the Idaho law is now being, the court is saying, this is what makes sense in Idaho. And the truth is, around the country, similar decisions have been, have been offered. There's also the second point where it says, and certainly, it's interesting, there's like another, there's like another detail over here. And the court's kind of saying like, so what would be the alternative? To say that the worker constructs worker has greater rights over the treasure on someone's land than the landowner itself? That's crazy. That's Meshuga. You're telling me that some stranger, right, has greater rights than the landowner to the buried treasure on the landowner's property? Think about what that could do. The court doesn't say this directly necessarily, but the slippery slope argument would be, well, then now you're just going to encourage people to break into people's private property and start digging in their land because maybe they'll find the treasure and it doesn't belong to their property owner, does it? So therefore, it's logical to say that, yes, the land, sorry, the, the, the treasure that's found on someone's property does belong to the property owner, even though they didn't know about it, they didn't find it themselves, doesn't matter, someone else digs it up, it belongs to the owner. In this case, uh, the property owner, in this case, it belongs to Wenner. The truth is, it's a logical approach. It makes a lot of sense. Okay, I I'm, I'm happy with that approach. Um, okay, any questions thus far on what we talked about? Any questions thus far? No? Makes sense? Okay. So when it comes to finders... Like to add something. Yep. Yeah, I want to 
Your connection, your connection is a little bit fuzzy. Just because you give somebody permission to do it. Oh, never mind then. No, 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 no. Now it's now it's clear. Now it's clear. Oh, well, my 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 my. What I was going to add is that just because somebody was was given permission to, to dig doesn't mean that you gave them permission to own. Good, right? Good. So you gave them permission to dig, but that it doesn't mean that they own the stuff that they find. Who says you own the stuff? Right. So, so the court ruled, and this is in Idaho, and this is in other places around the country. We only have one case study here, but the point is that the court ruled, and many and courts have ruled in, in the United States in many cases that the proper that treasure found on someone else's property belongs to the property owner. What we're going to do now, though, is look at a case that came before the Jewish court of law, or before a rabbinic um, authority. The case goes back to the 1800s. And the case was brought before Rabbi David Tzvi Hoffman, who was a great scholar and a great halachist, a great author of Jewish, a great authority of Jewish law in his time. And the case involves a pretty similar scenario as the one that we just read. And we're going to approach this from a uniquely Jewish perspective. All right, as we'll see soon. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump into case study number two. Okay, case study number two is the Hoffman case or Rabbi Hoffman case. Okay, let's, let's do this. Mm, made it a little bit smaller. I don't know if I like it smaller. Okay, here we go. Uh, let's ask, who are we going to ask to read? Let's, Adina Malka, are you up to reading? All right, please unmute and jump right in. A man sold his house three years ago. The new owner hired a worker several months ago to build an addition to the house on the large piece of land which came with the house. As the worker was digging, he found a large treasure in the ground, which included several barrels filled with gold coins. The seller is suing the buyer, arguing that the sale of the property should be retroactively voided. For had he known that the property possessed a treasure, he would never have sold it. At the very least, insists the seller, the treasure should be given to him as he only intended to sell the real estate, not the treasure. Okay, so now we have a little bit of a twist, a little bit of a twist on, this, on, on the case that we just had before. So now we have two property owners, mm -hmm. the previous property owner and the current property owner. So there's somebody there, so, so you have a property, okay? You have owner A and owner B. Owner A is the previous owner who sold it to owner B. Now, owner B has the property, and he's doing some work, right? He's building an addition to the house on, on, the, on the yard. It's on, there's, a, there's a house and, 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 and a yard, and he's building an addition. Well, now he has somebody digging. The worker's digging to build the addition. And lo and behold, I don't know where everyone's, how's everyone finding treasures? But this guy on his property, the worker finds a treasure. And now the plot twist is the original owner, owner A, says to owner B, the current owner, uh, my friend, I know I sold you the house three years ago, but actually it's still my property. Let's reverse the sale. Because I, had I known that there was gold on it, I would have never sold it to you. Or at the very least, you can keep the house and the property, 
but please give me back my, please give me back the gold that you found in the property because I used to own it. All right, so let's pause here for a moment. Let's pause here for a moment. moment. Let me stop sharing and let me ask you a similar question to what I asked before and that is, uh, you'll see in a moment, this is going to be poll question number three. All right, launch. How many potential claimants are there in Rabbi Hoffman's case? Rabbi Hoffman's case, how many potential claimants are there? Who could be vying for the gelt in Rabbi Hoffman's case? Jump in, jump in, jump in. Who is vying? Oh, good. We have multiple answers. Multiple. Love this. Okay. All right. Jump in. Chime in. You want to get involved? You only have 10 seconds left. Toggle your answer. We have 69% participation. Just click on whatever. Oh, good. We're getting, we're getting there. All right. Five, four, three. Someone get in for the Ni'ila shot. Two, one. All right. Fine. We're going to end the poll. And survey says most people are saying three potential claimants. Some say four. Some say two. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. All right. Uh, how many claimants? Who did you have? Everyone, anyone and anyone jump in. Who are the claimants? Let's go. Who are the claimants? Seller A, seller B, and the barrier. Se oh, hold on, hold on. Seller, so owner, I guess, let's call it owner. The, well, the, the original, the prior owner to the property, the current owner to the property, and the one who put the coins there. Good. That's three. Who, any other potential claimants? The digger. The digger, the worker. Good, right? Like we had in the last case. In this case, it seems like uh, the owner, the, 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 the previous owner, assuming the current owner, but for that matter, the worker could be vying for the coins as well. I mean, just because one guy makes a big, uh, big noise doesn't mean that, 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 that he's the only game in town. Good. Are you with me so far? Any other potential claimants? The guy... The original barrier. Good, the barrier of the coins. So I don't know why I ended with one, two, three, four. It seems like there's five now, right? Unless we had that already. One second, no, one second. That's, 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 you mentioned him. I mentioned that. Okay, good. So who are, so good. So who are four? We have, um, in, I guess, chronological order, the person who originally buried those gold coins. You have the original owner, the, the, the prior owner of the property, the new owner of the property, slash the current owner, and the, the worker who... The, the construction, the, the, the worker who dug it up. Good. Any other, uh, any other claimants or we're good? I think we're good with claimants. Yeah, we're good with the claimants. Now the question is, I'm going to put up the next poll. Okay? Now that we know the claimants, take a look. Take a look at the next poll question. Ooh, it's a, oh, a two-parter. Ooh, I'm so sneaky. Okay. All right. It's a two-part question. I'm going to give you extra time. I'm going to give you extra time to process. Okay. Question number one. Who do you think, this is a question for you, who do you think should get the treasure in Rabbi Hoffman's case? The current owner, the previous owner, the worker who dug it up, or another party? I'll let you, you can choose another party and just name yourself if you want. All right, current owner, previous owner, worker, or another party? That's question number one. Okay, and question number two is, who would the U.S. courts award their treasure to in Rabbi Hoffman's case. Based on our verdict before in Idaho, if we're saying that that is representative of the way U.S. courts rule on these issues, who would the U.S. court likely give the treasure to in Rabbi Hoffman's case? Current owner, previous owner, worker, or another party? All right, folks, it's Freilich. We have two questions, multiple choice, 
Let's go. Jump in on this. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. Current owner, previous owner, work on another party. Both. Who, what do you think? Question number one is, what do you think? Question number two is, what would the U.S. courts rule? Okay. I'm going to give another 10 seconds. All right. Jump in. It looks like we have most people participating, which is great. I'd love to see participation. It's good stuff. This is an interactive course. I already warned you before you signed up. This is interactive. Okay. Three, two, one. Ending poll. Okay. Survey says, aha. Most people are saying, okay, when I asked, do you, what, who, what do you think? Forget what the U.S. court, what do you think? Most said current owner, some said previous owner, and a minority, there was one person that said another party, okay? All results are anonymous. Not, question number two, you see that? It's a safe space. Question number two was, what would the U.S. courts rule? Most said current owner, some said, or a minority said previous owner. Excellent. I love this. This is fantastic. By the way, when I click X on the poll, does it disappear for you also? Did it disappear, the poll? Yeah? You gotta love Zoom. So responsive. Ah, Gavaldic. Okay, now let's jump in. Yes. Uh, why do you think, why do you think, if you voted this way, why do you think the current owner should get the coins in Rabbi Hoffman's case? Why do you think? Because he's the current owner. Current owner. Fine. He owns it. It's on his property. Fine. Why do you, if, if you voted previous owner, why do you think the previous owner should get the coins? If you did, if you voted that, I mean, you don't have to like, or if, or how could you articulate that argument why it should be the previous owners? What do you guys think? Because Reasonably, it belonged to them. the previous owner. If, go ahead. Go ahead, Sarah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can go ahead. Reasonably, the previous owner would have a claim only if he was the one who put the coins there. Interesting. Okay. So if the previous owner put the coins there, then it's a reasonable claim. But if not, then it's not much of a claim. Sarah, what were you saying? Pre yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Okay. Good. And that's why I put the other party, because that's the... That's so the you put other party, meaning the original person who read it. Good, Vlad. Exactly. But if the previous owner put the coins in, the claim that he didn't know when he's selling the property goes away. Ooh. The coins are there. Vlad with the killer argument. Excellent. Based on the language of the case, if you recall the case, the seller is... I'm reading it. Uh, you, you don't have to trust me. We'll put it back on the screen. All right? <sighs> who trusts a rabbi? The seller is suing the buyer arguing that the sale property should be retroactively voided for had he known that the property possessed the treasury, he would never have sold it. That indicates he had no clue, of course, it wasn't him. Good. Now, I understand. We're talking about theory. Theoretically, if he was the, the one who buried it there, good. But it seems based on the, the, the contours of this case, that previous owner did not put it there, which means that it's another party who is unidentified that put the coins there. Good. Okay. Listen. There's no right or wrong yet. This is just taking a temperature and having a conversation. So it's good. It's good. We have we have a back and forth here. It's a very. This is very much like a, a Talmudic academy. This is the way it would work, literally in a Talmudic academy. I'm very happy to host the Beit Medrash on Zoom, studying Gemara. This is fantastic. This is my dream. Thank you for being part of it. All right. Now. And the best thing is that the ladies can participate. Even in person, we do that also. But yes, you're right. This is true, right? Base Medrash. Um, would it be another party or say it again? Would there be would it be another party or there's just we're just discussing um, Well the question is if you had if you could find somehow, right? If you could potentially find that original owner, 
That would be another question. Okay, that would be a valid question. We're not going to address that now. I'm not giving any decisions, but this is, we're just discussing the options. Okay, so let's, sorry? Could you, um, like, trace, the, the, you know, who owned the title, trace the title? That might be one way of ascertaining it. Yeah, 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 maybe trace it back. You know, who owned it at the time of those coins were minted? Yes, Mars. When you sell something, tell me what you sell. Ah, good. So the guy, in this case, the guy's like, I didn't sell you a treasure. <laughs> I didn't know there was a treasure, but I didn't sell you a treasure. I sold you the property. Give me back my treasure. That's what this guy, he's what we call in Yiddish a cheverman. This guy is like, he's a player, right? This guy is like, I didn't sell you a treasure. I had no idea it was there, but had I known, no way, right? To the moon, Edith, right? This is, there's no way this is actually happening. You did not get the treasure. If you found an onion yeah. under the ground, who's in it? Is it the previous owner or is it the new owner? Right. Yeah. So, but if he found what? An onion. So you're saying it should belong to the current owner. He gets whatever is there. Yeah. yeah. That's what he thought. That's what. All right. Now, let, now, okay, good. That was question number one. If you recall, the, the poll had two questions. Question number two was based on the precedent of U.S. law, what would the U.S. courts likely rule? And I think the majority said it belongs, it would belong to the, 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 the U.S. courts would likely grant ownership to the current owner. And, I, and that, to me, that makes sense as well, based on the logic that we had from the Idaho case, uh, Jan, um, Jan Wenner's case. It would make sense that it would belong, that the court's rule belongs to the current homeowner. A after all, the court over there said that it's a reasonable assumption, reasonable presumption that the, the, the homeowner owns the property and anything inside the property. And we, we're very wary of giving it to any outsiders or, for that matter, I'm going I'm to extrapolate and say, or any previous homeowners three years later saying, oh, had I known, had you known, right? Yeah. Had I, uh, you know, whatever, had I been Tom Brady, things would be different. But, like, it is what it is. I'm not, and, and, and it's not, and you don't own the house, and that's it. Had I been Tom Brady, I would be back playing football. Right? So that's kind of where, where the situation is. Okay? Now, now, yes, everyone with me, more or less? Good? Okay. Now we need to understand this from a perspective of Jewish law, because so far we presented the Jewish case, or the case that came before the rabbi, Rabbi Hoffman, um, with the disputing, the, the dueling owners, the previous owner, the current owner. And I ask you what you think. I ask you what U.S. law would likely say. But we haven't yet discussed this from a Jewish perspective, based on Talmudic law, which is exactly what we're going to do now. I'm going to pull up the next reading. This comes from the Mishnah and the Talmud. So get ready to study some Talmud. And I'm going to read this text. Okay? I'm going to throw in some commentary as I do so. This is text number two. Buckle up, my friends. Get ready for a wild ride. Mishnah, if a person found any objects hidden in a heap of stones or in a cavity in an old wall that is still standing, they are his to keep. I'm going to read that one more time. If a person found any objects, these would be objects of value, hidden in a heap of stones or in a cavity in an old wall that is still standing, they are his. Hold on one second, one second, one second. Let me just mute everybody. They are his to keep, okay, they are his to keep. What does that mean? Um, this is a reference to treasure, coins, treasure found in someone else's home. This is not telling us if the homeowner found stuff in his home, he can keep it. That's obvious. This is another party, a third party, who finds something in your house. 
they can keep it. Take a look at the Gemara. Take a look at the Talmud. One second, take a look at the Talmud. The reason why the Mishnah gives a person the right to keep an object he finds in a heap of stones or in an old wall and does not recognize the claim of the owner of the stones or of the wall that the object belongs to him. Why not? How could the, the Mishnah, how, why, how, why does Jewish law give the rights to the hidden treasure to the third party or to the other party and not to the homeowner? Is that the finder, the finder, can say to the owner of the stones or of the wall, the objects I found do not belong to you. They originally belonged to the Amorites, one of the ancient Canaanite tribes. In other words, the Talmud continues, the finder can claim that they were buried in this spot since time immemorial, perhaps even from the period before the Israelites conquered the land of Canaan. And whoever finds them is entitled to keep them. So I'm going to keep this text here. This is a section of the Talmud. We're studying Talmud. Talmud study is based on the Mishnah. So we quoted a, a shtickle of the Mishnah, a piece of the Mishnah, and now we're elaborating on the Talmud. We're studying this. Yeah, the Mishnah says, if you find an object of value hidden in someone else's wall, you can keep it. Someone else's wall, you can keep it. Okay, the Talmud says, why? Why do you get to keep it? It should belong to the homeowner, like the U.S. courts say. How do you get to keep it? How do you, what gives you the right? So the Talmud says, because you can tell the homeowner, it's not yours. What makes it yours? Yeah, you didn't put it there. It could be. These are old coins. The coins belong to someone else. The coins predate you. The coins are from Canaanite tribes. Why is it yours? That's what the finder tells the homeowner. Are you with me on what the Talmud says? Before you tell me if you like the Talmud, there's two different issues. There's what the Talmud says, and then there's how we feel about it. Before we put ourselves on the couch and discuss our feelings, let's first say, I'm just kidding. Let's first understand, let's first talk about if we understand what the Talmud is saying. The Talmud is saying clearly, if you go into someone else's home, right, bust open their wall, theoretically. I'm being overdramatic here. Bust open their wall, find a treasure, and pull it out. It's yours. I, we're studying Talmud now, so you have to go the eye with the thumb twist. I, it's in someone else's home. Why isn't it theirs? So the Talmud says, because you can tell the homeowner, bro, it's not yours. You, you put those there? You put those ancient coins there? You put those Canaanite coins there? You put, you put those coins from like, um, what would it be? Oh, man. Like 1200, uh, 1200 BCE, you put those coins there? You don't look that old. How did you put that there? How are those yours? Those are not your coins. Modern coins. The Talmud's talking about a specific case. The Talmud's talking about a case where they're ancient coins. That's exactly what the Talmud is saying. In a case of ancient coins, the finder tells the homeowner it's not yours. Right? So again, again, it's very interesting because the Talmud rules. The Talmud says, very surprisingly, very surprisingly, that, uh, that, that, the, that the finder keeps it. Now, hold on. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. The Talmud continues. The Talmud, the Gemara, Talmud, Gemara, same as Talmud. The Talmud expresses surprise at this explanation. But were the Amorites, 
the only people to hide things? Do Jews not hide things? Surely the person most likely to have hidden the object is the wall's present owner. How can a finder be permitted to claim ownership of an object on the basis of such a fanciful claim? The Talmud answers, no. The ruling of the Mishnah, I said this before, the ruling of the Mishnah is necessary in, or applies in the following specific case. The object found in the heap of stones or in the wall was very rusty. Or according to some understandings of the Talmud, was buried under the ground and in an ancient spot, clearly indicating that it had been put there in the distant past. So what we're talking about is a very specific case. When the Mishnah rules, when Jewish law rules, that finders keepers, essentially, if I were to kind of summarize this text, finders keepers, finders keepers, homeowners weepers, that's what the Talmud says, right? Na 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 to the homeowners, finders keepers. When the Talmud rules that, it's a very specific case. It's talking about a case where... They're old coins, ancient coins, and it's obviously not belonging to the homeowner. The homeowner's not even claiming that they put it there, perhaps, right? Uh, presumably, they can't claim that because it, it's, it's old coins and they're not a collector or whatever it is. And so we tell the finder, you can keep it. You can keep it. It doesn't belong to the homeowner anyway. Okay, does that make sense? I mean, before we have questions. Yeah, that's the, what the Talmud says is what it says? Okay. Now, I see that there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of opposition. I, lot I don't of, think it makes sense. Okay. That gives somebody the permission to go into anybody's property and start digging. Good. So you're you're uh, you're within the view of the Idaho uh, Court of Appeals, or state. Uh, what was it? The Idaho yeah. Court of Appeals, who rules that no, we don't want to encourage. Um, uh, treasure seekers, treasure hunters, a new reality show, break into people's homes and take valuable stuff or find valuable stuff in walls. That's a whole genre now on Netflix, apparently. I'm kidding, it's not, but it would have been, according to Jewish law, and, 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 and we don't like that. Good, that makes sense. I understand that. Could be that Jewish law would say you can't trespass, but if you're already there, if somebody invited you for dinner, what's stopping you from elbowing a wall and reaching in and seeing what you got? Listen, right? right? Exactly. Okay, good. All right, hold on. So, but, but before we get before we get too too deep into the opposition, let me explain a little bit about what's going on in Jewish law. So, what Torah law is saying, what Jewish law, what Talmudic law is saying, is is very important, and that is that for some reason, which we haven't yet figured out, there is no ownership when you buy a home that has a secret treasure inside the walls of the home. There is no ownership that automatically happens to the secret treasure. Are you with me on this, what I just said? Based on the Talmudic ruling that says finders keepers, right? And the, the logic for finders keepers is, well, it's not yours anyway. That means that when you bought that house, you did not, you, the homeowner, did not gain possession or ownership over the secret treasure. The question is why? Because when you buy a house, maybe you should get all the secret treasure. If it's on the property, underground, in a wall, in a heap of stones, it should be yours. In an old barn on the property, it should be yours if it's yours. But Jewish law does not say that, clearly, because it literally did not say that. It said finders keepers, even though there's a homeowner who bought the property with the hidden treasure. But apparently, the treasure does not become theirs. The question is why. We'll answer that soon. But before we answer that, let's ask the question. Put up a poll. Let's put up another poll. 2.5. Stick with me. Stick with me, all right? Take a look at this. You don't have to like it, but listen to the question. You be the judge. Based on Talmudic law that we just read, 
to whom would you, based on Talmudic law, to whom would, and forget you, to whom would Talmudic law award the treasure in Rabbi Hoffman's case? I probably should clarify Rabbi Hoffman's case. Should I remind you about Rabbi Hoffman's case? Rabbi Hoffman's case is, hold on, let me end poll for a second. Hold on, before you vote. No one should vote yet. You can't vote because I, cl I closed the poll. Um, Rabbi Hoffman's case was, somebody owns a house, they're making an addition, there's a worker that dug, he found coins, and now the previous owner of the property who sold it three years ago is saying, it's mine, I never meant to sell it to you, I didn't know there was a treasure, let's reverse the sale or at least give me the treasure. The current homeowner says it's mine. Who would Jewish law, who would Jewish law award this to? Okay, take a look at the poll question. Real oh, quick, oh, yeah. was the digger clarified in that case? Hold, there was a worker, we don't know his name, but there okay. was a worker, hold on, hold on. Take a look, uh, where am I? Let me try this one more time. Did the poll show up? No. Aw. It's even gone. Ah. How do I do this again? Relaunch poll. Ha ha. Relaunch poll. Perfect. I love uh, I love Zoom. It works out. All right. Ready? Based on Talmudic law. Who would get the treasure? Current owner, previous owner, or worker? Who would get the treasure based on Talmudic law? We don't have to like it. Based on Talmudic law, who would get the treasure? Current owner, previous owner, or worker? Who would get, who would get the treasure? All right. I see the votes are coming in, and I see we got, we got a clean sweep here. Wow. 10 out of 10. You guys are good, good listeners and good learners. I love this. All right. Uh, no surprise as we count down three, two, one, ending poll. Results are in. 10 out of 10 who voted on this believe that Jewish law would award the coins to the worker. And the answer is in Jewish law, yes. Yes, it would belong to the worker. Right? Why does it belong to the Well, why? Because we said that the owner never acquires the hidden, the hidden treasure, because it's not theirs. They didn't put it there. They don't acquire it. It's, all, it's finders, keepers. Whoever finds it, gets it. Let me explain a little bit about why. In Jewish law, when it comes to acquisition, known in Hebrew as kinyan, kinyan is acquisition. When it comes to acquisition, there is a measure of consciousness and um, an awareness that is involved with the act of acquisition. It's not just about paying something for something. There's also a, a kavana. There's also an intention that is at play over here. When a person buys property, there is a reasonable expectation of what they are, or, or um, belief of what they are getting. A person knows that they're spending X number of dollars to buy this property, and they have a reasonable expectation of what it is that they're going to get. They do not have a reasonable expectation that there's a hidden treasure. And now, if you ask them, could there be a hidden treasure? Anything's possible. But are they expecting a hidden treasure? The answer is no. Eh, one second. Let me pause myself. Unless they're prospecting and buying a property because they believe that there could be a hidden treasure there, in which case, whatever I'm about to say does not apply. If you are buying property in an area of gold mines or an area of oil or an area of diamonds or an area of whatever it is because you think that in somewhere underneath the ground there is going to be that treasure, then yes, that treasure belongs to you because literally it's built in, baked into the sale. But when you buy a house, right, with a yard, you do not have, no Baba Mises, if we're being honest, you did not have in mind that there was a hidden treasure. Come on. Now, could there have been? Sure. But did you expect it? No.
In Jewish law, if there's, and this is a law across the board, so might as well, let's, uh, let's understand this. In Jewish law, when it comes to the laws of Kenyan acquisition, Kenyan in Hebrew is acquisition in English, when it comes to laws of Kenyan, buying something and acquiring it, only what you reasonably expected with the purchase is yours. That which had hidden value or that which was not hidden value, that which was hidden, completely hidden and unexpected, never becomes yours. You never acquired it. You never made a Kenyan. You never made an active acquisition. You only acquired, when you paid the money, when you doled out that cash, wrote the check, whatever it is, when you paid the money for this thing, you only acquired what you believed you were acquiring reasonably. What you reasonably believed you were acquiring. Something that's outlandish, absurd, unexpected, right? Out of the ordinary, on a, on a massive level, totally out of the ordinary. That is not acquired through the purchase. You bought a house, you bought a yard, you bought a field, that's what you got. Hidden treasure, you never purchased. You didn't know about it, you didn't have it in mind, you didn't expect it, it's not yours. Which means, listen to this, that so even, hold on one second, one second, which means that even when you purchased the house, the house became yours, and the yard, the yard became yours, the treasure remains ownerless. In Hebrew, that's called hefker. It remains ownerless. It is, it's not yours. You, oh, I bought the house. You bought a house. I got the yard. You bought a yard. Treasure, you had no idea about a treasure. How did you buy the treasure? It's ownerless. It's hefker. It's ownerless until a party finds it and holds it. The first party that acquires it, sorry, the first party that finds it and takes possession of it, physical possession of it, is the first party that acquires it. In this case, in Rabbi Hoffman's case, it's not the original owner. Sorry, it's not the previous owner. It's not the current owner. None of them knew about nor found the treasure. The first one to touch the treasure, to discover the treasure, is the worker. The Talmud rules, the Mishnah rules, Jewish law. This is not fringe. This is Jewish law rules that if you find the treasure in someone else's wall, it's yours. But it's their wall. It's not their treasure. It's so their wall. It's not their treasure. Yeah. So I think Jerry's going to ask the same question. So the worker in Idaho, the, the, the worker who's digging the, the whatever he's digging in the driveway over there or wherever he's digging, he gets to keep it, the construction company? According, according to Jewish law, the answer is yes. Oh, my gosh. Yep. The answer is yes. I've, I've got a slightly different question. Okay, yeah. Jump in. So, so you buy a piece of property... And somebody can dig underneath your property to harvest gold, coal, something like that, under your property without your permission and cause damage to your property. So this guy opened the wall. He, opened, he, he tore down a wall that was currently existing. Somebody can then come dig under your property, mine all the coal under your property, and cause your yard to collapse. They can cause damage to your property. No, the answer is no. If they cause prop dam property damage, it's vandalism. They can't trespass either, right? That's, uh, that's, that's trespassing. But the question is, if somehow the wall gets exposed, if somebody drives their car by accident into someone else's wall, 
and the wall breaks open, and there's a treasure there, and the guy says, oh, look, I got into Karkson, but I got a treasure out of it. Who keeps the treasure? In other words, yes, the law, Jewish law would be reasonable and prevent chaos from breaking out and trespass and theft or, or trespass and vandalism from happening. Of course, the law would take reasonable precautions against this. So in other words, the slippery, the slippery slope argument of the Idaho court saying that if we open it up, what's going to happen? Yes, Jewish law would take into consideration. But come up with a scenario, whatever reasonable scenario this could unfold, where somebody happens to chance, like the examples that we gave, somebody was hired to do a job on someone else's property and they're digging and they discovered treasure, they didn't trespass, they didn't vandalize, they were doing a job, but in the course of doing the job, they found the treasure, they get to keep it in Jewish law. Why? Because it's not owned by the current owner, you never intended on buying it, you didn't pay for it, you didn't know it was there, there was no reasonable expectation that that such a thing would be on your property. When you paid you know, half a million dollars for this big piece of land, you paid $500,000 for a house and a yard and, 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 and trees and a, and a this and a that, wonderful, that's what you got. Hidden treasure never crossed your mind. So yes, you're right, you're right that we would- when you buy a house, though, you expect to have ownership of everything that is on that property. Correct. And Jewish law would say... Good. Okay, good. So it, Jewish law would say whatever is reasonable at that moment, whatever we assess as reasonable. Somebody can't say, I, I expected that there was going to be a treasure with ancient coins buried there. You Really? You expected ancient buried coins on your property? A treasure that's full of coins? Who expects that? That's insane. Who expects that? Somebody shows up to court and says, no, I absolutely had that expectation. You tell me mineral rights, correct. If that's a normal thing in society, that there's minerals, that there's things, yes, that would be part of the reasonable expectation. I'm give, trying to give you a scenario. In other words, Jewish law is what it is. What it, it says what it says. And what it says is, in a case where there's ancient Canaanite coins, there was no way to expect that, then that does not belong to the property owner. He did not have that in mind when he bought the house. Okay. That's it. Oh. Adina Malka, jump in. Are you saying then it's first come, first serve? Whoever finds it is the one who keeps it correct. How do we stop people from breaking into people's homes? By punishing them for breaking into people's homes. That's the answer. How do we punish? How, how do we stop it? For, by, by punishing people from breaking into people's homes. That's the answer. Um, but something that is unexpected, and again, the cases we gave, the two case studies we had, let's be straight here, were cases where the person who found the item of value, the treasure on someone else's property, they had permission to be there in both cases, in Jan Wenner's case and in the case of the Talmud. Both cases were workers that had permission. There was no break and entering. The question is, but what happens if this becomes the law? Then what about breaking and entering? Good, so we'll have very strict laws, punishing people very strictly about people who break in to other people's homes. That's it. We'll have to create laws. But the core of this is about ownership. You can't, when you buy, when you purchase something, you did, that which you do not have in mind. By the way, if, if this is all, if this is like blowing your mind or like this is like kind of jarring your sensibilities, just wait. Oh, trust me, we're not even started yet. I mean, we're started, but like we're just like at the beginning of this conversation. We have more cases that will absolutely Light the fire. All right. I like this. Is Judy. Is there any requirement to find original owner? Uh, good question. There is, yes. As we'll see, there is, that, that would be the first, that would be the first, um, if you can identify the original owner, 
then that would be the strongest argument. Correct. Correct. Yes. Judy, jump in. Okay. You keep saying that it's, that it's not owned by the property owner, but it also wasn't owned by the finder. But he, he found he, it. He didn't know. But he found it. Correct. So You're right. What? You're right. He put his hands on it and that makes it his? Yes. I mean, he didn't. Yes. He had, yeah, I understand your question. The answer is yes. In Jewish law, Kenyan acquisition happens when somebody takes possession of it. Correct. If, so, if, if, there's, if there's abandoned property in the middle of the street, the first person to come over and pick it up, it's theirs. That's the way it works in Jewish law. The first person to touch it, the first person to discover it, it's theirs. That's the way it is. Yes. Yeah, but, that's, but that's in the street. This is in the homeowner's property. It's uh, But it's not his. He never bought it. It's Hefker. It's within. It's it's um it's uh what is it? Switzerland or whatever. It's like it's it's a it's a neutral entity within a private property. So yes, exactly. It's like it's like suspended. It's suspended. It's suspended in otherwise someone else's property. You have a hidden treasure with hidden with, with completely unexpected out of the ordinary, and it's hidden. Now, Rabbi. Yes. Rabbi Yes. You're saying that if there was no meeting of the minds between the buyer and the seller, then that, that, that obviates the ownership rights of the current owner of the property. Correct. And the truth is, in this case, there wasn't even a meeting of minds of the seller either. The seller had no idea it was there. The seller thought it was a house in a yard. He sold the house in a yard. The purchaser th thought he was getting a house in a yard. He bought a house in a yard. No one bought a treasure. No one sold a treasure. There was not a talk of a treasure. No one knew about a treasure. It was not even a, it was not even a fantasy that there should be a treasure here. Now who found the treasure? The worker. Good. The worker gets the treasure. That's how it works. That's how Jewish law rules. So in the case of Rabbi Hoffman, yeah, the previous owners, are three, three years ago I sold it to you, but it's really mine. See you later. The current owner, it's mine. I, 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 it's my treasure. It's on my property. See you later. The worker, who's not even talking in this case, it's the workers. He made the Kenyan. It's his. And it all comes back to the piece of Talmud from, uh, from Tract 8, Bava Metzia. Classic, classic Talmud case. Yeah, that's where it comes down to. And the, the, the Talmud would rule the same, presumably, in the case of Jan Wenner in Idaho. It's not, it's not Wenner's. It's not winners. It's, uh, it's Corliss or Anderson. It's whoever found it. Finders keepers. Now, let's so, present so, so some... So Dayan was right. He kept some of the treasure he found. <laughs> I don't know that case, but possibly. <laughs> I'm just, I should, it's, I, no, I'm just joking. Okay, so now let's present some counter-arguments. Let's present some potential counter-arguments. Um, and this is what Rabbi Hoffman... You know, in, when you have halachic responsa, Shilas and Chuves, you have the rabbi will present, in writing usually, he'll present like the question that was, he'll first write the question and his thought, sources, I, no one has thought. In Jewish law, you don't have a thought. <laughs> I, th I think, there's no I think. It's what does the Talmud say? What does halacha say? What does the Torah say? What does Jewish law say? It's not I think the law should be. There's no I think, right? It's what do the sources say? What's the precedent? So Rabbi Hoffman cites the precedent from the Talmud. The Talmud, Talmudic precedent seems to indicate that the worker who found the coins should be the, should be the owner of the, of the coins, of the treasure. But he presents a counter-argument a counter based on an ethical consideration, based on a, a Talmud Yerushalmi, a Jerusalem Talmud, Talmudic statement. So I'm going to share my screen, and let's look at it inside. Okay, I'm going to read this. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's another case. Whoa, look at this case. Look at this case. Here we have the Hagoyas Ashri. 
Haggai Sasheri, who explains the rationale behind everything we just said, and you'll see he puts in the words that I've shared with you thus far. Listen to this. The existence of a treasure on someone's property is a very unlikely occurrence. Thus, at the time the property was purchased, it never occurred to the present owner that he was involved in the purchase of a treasure as well. Therefore, listen to this, it never became his, as one cannot take possession of an unknown hidden property which is not at all within the realm of likelihood. That's a very long sentence, and every word there is critical. One never take, one cannot take possession of an unknown hidden property which is not at all within the realm of likelihood. And he cites a case. There was once a case, listen to this, where someone bought some tin plates from a building supplier to serve as tin roofing shingles, but then decided to sell the tin to a friend instead. So he buys, yeah, he buys tin roof, he buys tin plates for roofing, and they say, ah, I don't want to do my roof. He sells it to someone else. The friend decided to melt the tin down and found that beneath the layer of tin, these plates were made of pure silver. Ooh la la, they were tin plated silver. Who does that? Who knows? When the case came before Rabbi Eliezer of Metz, he ruled that the friend, the new owner of the tin plates, did not have to return the plates, nor did he have to compensate the seller for the difference in value, tin versus silver, as the seller who bought the plates from the supplier never assumed ownership of the silver. Rabbeinu Tam agreed with this ruling, and I hope this case is making sense to you. We have multiple parties here. There's the original supplier of the tin, the original purchaser of the tin, and the current owner of the tin who discovers that it's not tin, it's actually silver underneath which is worth much more than tin. So now, let's say the supplier doesn't exist, for, for argument's sake. Let's say the supplier was a traveling salesperson who's now gone, poof, vanished, we have no idea who that is, let's just say. So now it's between the two parties. Let's just keep, keep it simple, between two parties. Party A is the original purchaser of the tin plates from the supplier. Party B is the one who currently purchased and owns the tin plates. He discovers the silver. So, who owns the silver? <laughs> Does, should he give back the plates to the guy he bought it from? Should he reimburse him for the value of the silver? Should he split the money? What do you do? Ra the Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam, he was like one of the Tosafists. This is like, these are great authorities of Jewish law, great, the greatest of the medieval Jewish sages. This is like halacha. This is straight up law. Rabbeinu Tam ruled that it's his. His meaning the one who owns the templates now, it's his, it's his silver. That's it. Why? Because the original owner, not the supplier, but the first owner, yeah, in our story, when he bought the tin plates, he paid for tin plates, he got tin plates, and he sold tin plates. Silver, he had no expectation of silver. He never bought silver. He never owned silver. He never paid for silver. He never expected silver. It was never even a thing. He never psychologically, he never anticipated silver. So how did he own the silver? He thought, oh, he owned the silver. Oh, he made a mistake. He made a mistake? He never knew he owned the silver. How do you own the silver? If you how do you own something you have no expectation about owning? How, how do you own something that you have no idea is there? You, you owned it? How did you own it? You paid for tin. You thought you had tin. You sold it at the price of tin. You own the silver, right? I have a, you have a, 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 a bridge in Brooklyn. You want to sell me also. How did you own the silver? On what planet did you own the silver? How did you own the silver? So now the new owner 
who also bought tin plates, had no expectation, but he found the silver. So guess who gets to keep the silver? Mr. Finder, finders keepers, same law. The guy who found it gets to keep the silver. Okay, that's the way um, uh, Rabbi Eliezer of Metz ruled. Rabbi Tam agreed with the ruling. This is straight up halacha, finders keepers in a very specific scenario. Let's be very clear. It's not in all cases. Right? There's a very specific scenario that we're dealing with here, and that is when there is something, a windfall of incredible value that's incredibly outlandish, incredibly unlikely, was not in the expectation, in the mind space of the buyer, the seller, whoever it was, and now just happened. In those cases, in, or in this type of case, it does not belong to the purchaser, it does not belong to the seller. It belongs to the, the first person to discover it. They are the owner. Okay? And the reason is because it was outside the expectation. Let's, let's hold questions for right now. And I want to present some counter arguments. So let me share my screen again. And let's take a look at a very interesting Talmud Yerushalmi, Jerusalem Talmud. Here we go. Alexander of Macedon, or Macedonia. That's Alexander the Great for all those keeping score at home. Alexander the Great visited the king of Kazia beyond the dark mountains. The king of Kazia came forth offering Alexander golden bread on a golden tray. Do I then need your gold, he demanded. You think I came here for your gold? Had, had, you, had you then nothing in your country that you have come here? In other words, so Alexander the Great says to him, I don't need your gold. The other king, the king of Kazia says, so why'd you come here? So Alexander answers, I came only because I wish to see how you dispense justice, was the reply. Okay, so notice, I want to see how you judge your kingdom. As he sat with him, a man came with a complaint against his neighbor. Here we go. Buckle up. All right. This man sold me a dunghill, and I found a treasure in it. Okay, so the, the, uh, the, the buyer says, this guy sold me a dunghill, and now I found a treasure. The buyer argued, I bought a dunghill only. I don't want the treasure. Listen to this. Very kind of these people, right? I bought a dunghill. I didn't buy the treasure. I want to give the treasure back. The seller said, I sold the dunghill and, and all it contained. I sold him everything. Let him keep the treasure. This is, this is the opposite of what you and I would expect. They're fighting over the other guy getting the treasure, right? There's a fighting. Each one is trying to give the treasure to the other guy. What kind of crazy Meshuggah place is this? But this, this is the story, right? The purchaser says, I only bought a dunghill. Let him keep the treasure. The seller says, I sold him everything. So the king, listen to this, the king said to this one, do you have a son? Yes, he replied. Do you have a daughter? He asked the other, yes. Then marry them, in other words, let them marry each other, and let the treasure belong to both. <laughs> Your kids should get married, and they should split the treasure. That's it. The king noticed Alexander sitting in astonishment, right? He asked him, have I not judged well? Yes, he replied. Had this happened among you, he asked Alexander the Great, how would you have judged? I would have slain both and kept the treasure for myself. He's honest. <laughs> does rain, does rain descend? Listen to this. Does rain descend in your country? He asks Alexander the Great. Yes, he replied. Does the sun shine? Yes, he replied. Have you small cattle? Yes, he replied. By heaven, the king of Kazia exclaimed, it is not for your sake the rain falls and the sun shines, but for the sake of the animals. As it is written, man and beast, you deliver, O Lord. Man, by the merit of the beast, you deliver, O Lord. Basically, the king of Kazia says to Alexander the Great, buddy, you are so corrupt, 
you would kill these people and take their treasure for yourself. Thank God for the little animals that God cares about, because otherwise your kingdom would be doomed. Anyway, that's the story. What we see, what the upshot from this story, as Rabbi Hoffman articulates, is that there might be a value, an ethical value, but a value in splitting the treasure between the two parties. There might be a value, and I know in this case it was the opposite, that each one wanted the other guy to take the treasure, which is very weird. Uh, I mean, when I say weird, it usually doesn't happen this way, that both are trying to give it away, and they're fighting over who should, the other guy should take it. But nonetheless, maybe there's value in somehow splitting the treasure and, you know, kind of dividing it in half. Allah King Solomon, I'm kidding, right? Allah, whatever, a good compromise. You know, a compromise, split it in half, 50-50, one to the homeowner and one to the finder. Maybe that's the way it should be. The one who sold it, the one who bought it, the homeowner, the one who found it, maybe we should split it. And the answer is no. In this case, Rabbi Hoffman notes, it could be that the treasure was actually an inheritance. We spoke about inheritance last week. It could be that the treasure and the dunghill belonged to the original, to the dunghill's owner, the dunghill own, original dunghill owner's, you know, Zaidi. Could be it belonged to the father, or the grandfather, the great-grandfather, could be in the family. So in that case, there was more of a, an argument that it should belong because when it comes to inheritance, even if, oh, this is, this is a new point, so it's a big point. Let me, you know, drum roll. Okay, so what's the new point? If we're dealing with an inheritance, then even if you don't know about it, it's still yours. Does that make sense? Cue up last week's class. When it comes to inheritance, it's automatic. It doesn't require your knowledge. Even a baby, if a parent dies, the little baby inherits everything. Oh, the baby doesn't know. It's not about awareness. It's not about expectation. It's not about mindfulness. Inheritance is automatic. It's natural. It's like it's guaranteed. It's automatic. So you don't need that mind. When it comes to buying something, you have to have das. You have to have knowledge of what you're purchasing. When it comes, and in which case we say if there's no expectation of that, then maybe you never acquired it and it's, and it's, it's available for whoever finds it. But when it comes to inheritance, Inheritance is very different. Inheritance is automatic. So it could be in this case, the reason why the king said to split it is because it did somehow belong to the dunghill, original dunghill owners because maybe it was an inheritance. and that, that, So it makes sense that it should be split, at least to make everybody happy in that case. Okay, that's one thing. Another po possible counter-argument, and I'm going through this quickly because these are the counter-arguments, but um, the main thing is that we know the rule. The next counter-argument is the legal counter-argument. It says in the Talmud, again, Trante Baba Metzia, the hand of a worker is like the hand of his employer. So it says again, uh, the hand of a worker is like the hand of his employer, which means that whatever he finds, if a worker finds something, it, should, it would seem like it should belong to the employer, the one who hired him. So in the case of the treasure, if the homeowner... In both cases, the secular case and the Jewish case, in the case of Wenner and Idaho, in the case of, the, of Rabbi Hoffman, in both cases, the homeowner hired a worker. So if the worker finds it, and the hand of the worker is like the hand of the employer, the one who hired him, then it should revert back to the homeowner. Does that make sense? Yes? If the homeowner hires the worker, if the Talmud says that Yad HaPoyo Kiyad Abalabas, the hand of the worker is like the hand of the one who hired him, who's paying him, Right? Whatever he finds is, is, belongs to the guy who hired him. So then, perfect. So then it belongs to the homeowner. So then we're good. So it belongs to Wenner. It belongs to the, to the current homeowner of the house in the Rabbi Hoffman's case. And that's it. No, there's a Talmudic case. That, there's another Talmudic clarification that excludes this from being the truth. Because here's what it says. Whatever is found by a worker belongs to him. 
and not the employer for whom he was working at the time. When and under what circumstances does this ruling apply? The Talmud answers, it applies when the employer said to the worker, perform a, spe a specific type of work for me, such as weed for me today or hoe for me today. In such a case, an object found by the worker during the time he is employed by the employer belongs to the worker. In other words, I just want to explain. If the, if the, if the, if the employer, the one who did the hiring, says to the employee that I'm asking you to do a specific work, Anything outside of that work is the employee's own time and own money and own, uh, his, his, his own business. But if the employer said to the worker, work for me today generally, without specifying the particular type of work involved, whatever the worker finds belongs to the employer since the worker's acquisition of the found objects is considered part of his work for the employer. In other words, if somebody says, I want to hire you to, uh, um, I want to hire you to, uh, uh, you know, an electrician to, to fix some wiring. So their job, their employment is limited to the wiring. Anything else that they do is their own and it's nothing to do with the guy who hired him. But if somebody says, I'm paying you to work for me today, then whatever the guy founds belongs to the, it's all employment of the guy who hired him because he said, work for me today. That means whatever he finds, whatever he comes across belongs to the guy who hired him because the whole day is owned, if you will, by the employer. Anyway, that's a clarification to say that if these workers were hired, you know, to do work, a specific type of work, and they find treasure while they're doing that work, then it's, uh, you can say, the, the, the worker can say, I was hired, I was hired to, to, build, to build an extension, not to, not to find treasure. The treasure is mine. You didn't pay me to find treasure for you. You paid me to build an extension. I'm building you an extension. The treasure that I found is my own time. It's my own time. It's my own dime. It's my own business. You, have not, you, have, you, you, don't, you don't get involved. So in this way, Rabbi Hoffman deflects both potential counter-arguments, both the ethical from the Jerusalem Talmud and the legal from, from, from the Babylonian Talmud he deflects them both. And if you didn't under, if, if, if it wasn't so clear, the counter arguments and the counter to the counter, that's also okay. Because where we're left is exactly where we started. Jewish law says that finders keepers. If the owner of the property is unaware of hidden value, hidden treasure, and it's not something that he would reasonably have expected when he purchased the, the property, if it's completely outside his expectation, he never owned it. He never acquired it. It's not his. It remains ownerless within, within a larger context, within, within his ownership. This, this specific treasure remains ownerless, waiting to be discovered by the first person who discovers it, and that person will be the one who acquires it. Okay? Now, based on this, let's present case study number three. Okay? Case study number three is coming your way. Here we go. The Shevet Alevi. Rabbi Shmuel Wozner writes the following. This is a modern case <clears throat> in Israel. A father gave his child a bill to give to, to, give to, a, to a charity collector, a tzedakah collector. And he told the child to get change. When the child handed over the change to the father, the father noticed that one of the coins was very old and likely to be of some value. So the question is, who gets the coin? Again, let me, let me explain the scenario. I'll explain it to you outside. Let's, let's make it American. Instead of shekels, let's make it dollars. So imagine a dad gives his kid a dollar bill. And he says to the kid, 
give it to this person who's collecting money. You see that person collecting money? Okay, give it to that person and ask for 50 cents change. So give him a dollar and take 50 cents. You're going to give 50 cents to tzedakah, 50 cents to charity, get 50 cents change. The kid comes back with two coins, two quarters. But instead of regular quarters, the dad sees, one second, these are like secret value or hidden, um, or hidden value. What was the language here that we had in the text? Um, one of the coins was very old and likely to be of some value. So he noticed that something about the coin may be a little bit valuable. So now the question is, so what do you do? Do you keep the coin or do you give it back to the charity collector? Now remember the charity collector, it's not his, well, the charity collector probably got that coin from someone else. Are you with me? The charity collector is handling money all day. So the question is when the charity collector got the coin from who knows who, did the charity collector ever know about the rare coin in his possession to acquire it, or was it unknown and unexpected, and thus finders keepers? What do you guys think? Let me pull up a poll. All right, hold on, before you answer, let's pull up a poll. This is gonna be poll um, 2.6. Here we go. You be the judge. Based on Talmudic law, who should get the rare coins? The father or the charity collector? The father found it. The father has it now. The charity collector is the one who gave the change to the kid to give to the dad. Forget the kid. I mean, the kid, a kid, father and kid would be the same category, right? So who, who should get the coins? The father or the charity collector? All right. Five, four, three, two, one. Majority. Oh, we're evening out. Okay, interesting. All right. The majority says father. Some say charity collector. Let's, all right, unmute yourself and tell me if you said father, why did you say father? Jump in. Why father? Finders keepers. Finders keepers. Why charity collector? If you said charity collector, if you could articulate an argument for charity collector, why? Why charity collector? Who's got it? Anyone? And it's not buried treasure. Oh. They good. didn't have a chance to examine what's in that donation. Good, uh, good. They might have discovered themselves. Good. So the question is, does a rare coin or an old coin have the same status of a buried treasure that we said is unexpected and unforeseen and you know would likely not be discovered if not for that other party? And one could argue both ways, really. One could argue both ways. One could argue that the case of the coins is a little bit different because... It is not something of hidden, you know, hidden value. It's something that just he didn't look at because he's dealing with money. Good, excellent, excellent counter argument. However, well, huh? The charity, the fellow that had the coin in the beginning, it wasn't his in the first place. Then, if that's the case, right? Okay, so that's one set. Yeah, one set of the argument is not his because he never knew it to be there. He never discovered it. Right. But one could say maybe it's not outside the realm of his business that he sometimes gets rare coins. So it's not unexpected. It's not like a buried treasure that you, there's no way that you expected that. Maybe it is. I will tell you this, Rabbi Wozner, and who was the rabbi that this question was asked to, this is a modern question in Israel. So he ruled that the person, the father who got the coin may, is able to keep it. Why? It's similar to the tin plates. He ruled, and again, it's a bit of a judgment call. He ruled that it's similar to the tin plates that turned out to have silver, you know, underneath it. 
Remember we had the case of tin plates, Rabbeinu Tam and Rabbi Elezer Metz ruled on it. So they thought they were dealing with tin plates, but the final guy that, that possessed it now melted it down and realized, whoa, this is silver actually underneath. So it's similar to that where there's a little bit of a hidden value. Um, there is a... There is a challenge to this. I'm looking at my notes. Um, yeah, there is a possible counter-argument that says, no, the coins are not hidden. Tin plates, if it looks like tin, you had to melt it down to see, but the coin is the coin. You just didn't look at it, right? It's The coin is not hidden. It's just it wasn't looked at. It's a bit of a gray area. Rabbi Wasser happened to rule that it's hidden enough you know, maybe you had to be an expert to figure it out. It's hidden enough that uh, the charity collector did not gain possession, and thus it remained ownerless until the father discovered it, and he gets to keep it. He can keep the value. He doesn't have to let the charity collector know about it. He gets to keep it. Now, the next case is phenomenal. I don't have a text for it, but I'm going to tell you the case. The case happened in the 1800s in Poland. Listen to this. There was a Jewish merchant in Poland who was selling merchandise. And a traveling French businessman um, made a purchase of $500 worth, worth of merchandise. So a French businessman makes, gives this guy five, oh, 500, maybe not $500, what, whatever, what currency do they have then? Uh, 500 gulden, gulden, 500 gulden. So he gives him 500 gulden. Um, great, the Jewish businessman, he sold the merchandise, gets 500, you know, 500 gulden. And he takes that 500 and he gives it to somebody who he owed 500 gulden to. He had a debt of 500, so he made the sale. He takes the cash and gives it to this other guy. Listen to this. Turns out it wasn't 500, it was 1,000. When the French businessman was, hand, was, 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 was um, giving him, paying out the bills, he gave him 10 100s instead of 10 50s. Are you with me? He gave him 10 100s. He gave him 1,000 instead of 500. And then the guy, so he didn't count proper. He didn't count the money. He thought he had 50s. He gave him 10, he thought he gave him 10 50s, gave him 10 hundreds. The Jewish businessman also didn't count the money. He just passed it along to the, to the creditor, to the guy he owed. And now that guy's like, you, I just got a thousand dollars or a thousand gulden. So now what's the law, right? Who did, did, did the, now the French businessman, no one knows who he is. He was a traveling guy. You can't track him down. If you could track him down, then you would probably have to give it back to him. But now what happens? Do you give it back to the, to the Jewish middleman, to the, to the seller, or you give it to... Oh, you know what? Let me pull this up on the screen. I actually have a poll. I created a poll for this question. The poll is um, 2.7. Here we go. Launch the poll. You be the judge. Based on Talmudic law, who should receive the overpayment? The seller or the lender? The seller is the guy who sold to the French guy who got the money, got the thousand instead of the five hundred, and then he gave it to the lender. So who should get it? Who should get it? Um, the seller or the lender? Do we say finders keepers, or do we give it back to the seller, the first person that has it? That's the question. All right, we'll give another eight seconds. Do this quickly, so that we can uh, stick with the time a little bit. All right, five, four, three, two, one. Good. The seller. Most people said the seller, some said the lender. Look, based on what we said before, the lender, you know, that's the finder or keeper. We, that's, that's what we've been saying. But in this case, the rabbi at the time who was, um, oh, this is from Rabbi Yosef Shalom Natanson. 
He was the one who ruled on this or who cited this case. And, um, and he, he explained that in this case, it's not hidden value. It's not like a rare coin. A rare coin, maybe you have to know how to look, but a, a bill that says 50 or 100 on it, it's just someone not looking. It's not hidden value. Are you with me? A coin is a little bit more hidden value to say that the coin was never owned by the one who didn't notice the value. It's owned by the finder, finder's keepers. But in this case of the money, it's simply overlooking the money and that you can't penalize someone for overlooking. And thus, the extra 500 should be returned to the one who, gave, who, who made the overpayment. Give it back to the first party, the Jewish seller, the businessman, not the, lend, not the lender, and he should, the lender should give back the money to the borrower. So essentially, in this case, there were three parties, the French businessman, the Jewish businessman, and the lender. The French businessman gives 1,000 instead of 500. The Jewish businessman gives to the lender 1,000 instead of 500. And the lender is obligated to give back the overpayment of 500 back to the Jewish businessman who profits off of the Frenchman's mistake because he can't, if he could find the Frenchman, he would have to give back to him because it was a mistake. He still, but you, he, there's no way to track it, no receipts, no nothing, no, you know, no ID. That's it. So he gets to keep it and that's how it works. All right, that's the exception to the rule where it's not a hidden value. It's an obvious value that was just made, that a mistake was made. In other words, you don't penalize someone for a mistake, right? You pet, when, when, when it's unexpected, that's when you get a little bit of a windfall. We're going to do one more case. We're right at the time. One more quick case. And this will put all of our knowledge to the test, right? Everything that we learned today is going to come together in this final case study. Here we go. Case number four. This is really case five because I added an extra one. Case four. Patrick Dunn lived at 1411... What? 11401 Edgewater Drive in Cleveland from 1934 until his death in 1968. He was self-employed, owning the P. Dunn News Agency. In April 2006, Amanda Reese, who was then the owner of the Edgewater House, contra contracted with defendant Robert Kitts to remodel her master bedroom. On Thursday, April 27, 2006, Kitts and his helper uncovered two green metal lock boxes suspended by a wire below the medicine chest inside the bathroom wall. Wow. The boxes were wrapped in newspaper bearing publication dates of October 13, 1938 and September 13, 1939. Inside the two boxes were envelopes printed with return addresses for the P. Dunn News Agency. The envelopes contained cash of varying denominations, the cachet. Yeah, is that how to pronounce it? Contained $157,000 in cash. That's no, in this, a, in this case, it's pronounced cash. Cash, okay. Yeah. Good. The cash contained $157,000 in cash. Kitts returned to complete his remodeling job. Days later, on May 2nd, 2006, Kitts was demolishing the wall in the bathroom on the opposite side of the room where the two metal lock boxes were found and then discovered two cardboard jewelry boxes. These boxes contain $25,000 in cash. These funds were not in marked envelopes as the previous funds had been. So there were two fines, one in envelopes that were marked, that was the 157,000, and unmarked envelopes, 25,000. Kitts and Reese, who were Kitts and Reese? Kitts was the worker, and Reese was the homeowner. Kitts and Reese discussed the division of the funds. At one point, she, the homeowner, offered Kitts, the worker, 300 bucks, but later withdrew her offer. Their relationship soured, obviously, after finding a total of, what, 157 plus 25, $172,000. Yeah, you would think that he's going to be 
upset about getting $300. Um, Kitts was paid for his construction services but received none of the funds found in Reese's house. A newspaper article was published about the found money in December 2007. On January 11, 2008, less than a month later, the estate of Patrick Dunn, having been reopened, filed suit demanding the funds from Reese. In this case, we now have fireworks, baby. All right, now let's start this. Let's start this. I'm going to pull up the, uh, the poll questions. You ready? I have four poll questions. All right, here we go. Here we go. Actually, no, sorry. I have one poll question right now. How many potential claimants are there in the Reese case? I may have misspelled that. Yeah, I did misspell that. But how many potential claimants are there? Right? Who do we have? Who are the claimants? Let's go. Think about it. Who are the claimants? Okay. Bum, ba -dum, bum. Okay, we'll give another five seconds. Who are our claimants? Who are our claimants? All right. Well, let's end poll. We have three or four. Let me go through them and let's see if we're on the same page here. Okay, claimant number one is the homeowner, Reese. Claimant number two is the worker, Kitts. Claimant number three is the estate of, uh, of Mr. Patrick Dunn. Right, the Dunn estate. Is there a fourth claimant? I'm not sure. We have the homeowner who owns the house, the worker who found the money, and the estate. Or helper. Uh, I don't think there's there was a helper. Helper did say that. No, I don't think there was a helper in this case. No, just just one guy. So there's the homeowner, the worker, and the the one whose envelopes right are wrapping the money 157,000 of the money all right so now that we know who's involved let me pull up the next few questions okay and i know it's maybe a bit tedious to deal with this in polls but it's also fun at least for the first several times all right you be the judge according to us law ah now this will test your entire knowledge okay according to us law us law first who should receive the marked money again the money that is in the re-marked envelopes no, i'm sorry the the done the done marked envelopes there are envelopes that say P. Dunn, news agency on it. So question number one, start answering question number one. What would U.S. law say about, this, about the marked money? Question number two is according to Talmudic law, who should receive the marked money? Question three, according to U.S. law, who should receive the unmarked money? And question four, according to Talmudic law, who should receive the unmarked money? All right, jump in. I know it's a lot of questions. I know it's late, but see if you can pull this off, guys. All right, this is the last, this is the final hurrah. Okay, the marked money. Again, marked money. Marked money. Who should receive the marked money? According to U.S. law and Talmudic law. Those are questions one, two. The unmarked money. According to U.S. law and Jewish law. Who should receive the unmarked money? Okay, these are the four questions. Oh, wow, it's like Passover. It's like Passover. What's the owner's name? The owner is Reese. The owner is Reese. The worker is Kitts. And the estate is done. I should have probably put that there. Reese owner, Kit's worker, and Dunn's estate. Okay, four questions, four questions. All right, think about it, think about it, and we're gonna go through them one at a time, and hopefully, hopefully things are clear by the end of this class, and we have a nice clear delineation between US law and Talmudic law. I will end the poll in five seconds. All right, now's the final chance. It's Ni'ila time, the gates are closing. Two, one. Poll is ending. Here we go. According to U.S. law, who should receive the marked money? We said in general, according to U.S. law, uh, the, when something treasure is found, it belongs to the homeowner. However, 
and I don't know if I emphasized this before, even according to U.S. law, if we know who mislaid the property, who the pro I probably didn't emphasize this before, so my apologies, but now is a good time to clarify this. Even in U.S. law, even in Idaho law, the reason why they gave the money to Jan Wenner is because we had no idea who put it there. But if we have envelopes marked P. Dunn uh, um, uh, news agency, if we know that it belonged to Mr. Dunn, the original or an original homeowner, then it would go to the estate. In U.S. law, it goes to the estate. The only issue of who should get the money, the homeowner or the workers, if you don't know who, it, who originally put it there. If you know who put it there, they never lost their right to the property. It's their, it's their money. They just haven't come back for it yet, or, or they, they, they lost it. But just because you lose something doesn't mean it's no longer yours. So it would go, in U.S. law, it would go to Dunn's estate, the marked money. But what about the unmarked money? Oh, no, I'm sorry. What about Talmudic law? What about Talmudic law about the marked money? So again, I also didn't clarify this. Uh, maybe we did. I forgot. I mentioned this with the French, with the French guy, uh, French businessman. If we could find him, we would give him back the money. So in Talmudic law, if you know whose it was, it goes back to the estate. It would go to Dunn's estate. Why? Because Dunn owned it. And he put it there. And the fact that it was forgotten, or whatever it is, doesn't remove it from his ownership. Remember, when Reese bought it, Reese never bought that, the, the treasure. Kids found it, but kids found a treasure that already has an owner that we can identify. It's wrapped, in the, it's wrapped in an envelope that says P. Dunn News Agency. We know it belongs to Dunn's estate. We know who put it there. So we don't say finders keepers when you know who the original owner was. Now, how come by the Canaanites did we not say that it goes back to the Canaanites? Good luck finding the original Canaanites. How do you know which Canaanite it was? That was what the Talmud says. It belongs to the own, it belongs to the finder when you find it in the wall of a house because who's your Canaanite? How many Canaanites do you know that, uh, that, that you know owned this house? How are you going to find that out? It's not even possible. But in this case, you don't have to do any work. It's literally marked. Dunn's estate says, hello, it's Zadie Dunn's. We know whose it is. It belongs to Dunn. Now, so in other words, U.S. law and Jewish law would agree that it, the marked money belongs to Dunn's estate. Both, both bodies of law agree. But what about the unmarked money? Now, you could say, well, unmarked money, who else put it there? Isn't it obvious? Not necessarily. It's unmarked. It, it's circumstantial evidence. If there was some money that was marked and some money that wasn't, and they're both hidden, they're probably both from the same person. But how do you know? There's no, ev there, there's no proof. It's, it's a presumption. There's no proof. Therefore, U.S. law would say it belongs to the homeowner. How do you know it belongs to Dunn? It's not marked. So U.S. law would say it belongs to the homeowner, right? Because as we said, whatever is in the house belongs to the homeowner unless it's marked. Someone, but according to Talmudic law, who does it belong to? It belongs to Kitts. That is correct. The majority was right on this one. Kitts, it belongs to Kitts. Why? Because it's not marked, so it can't go to Dunn. We don't say the homeowner bought it because the homeowner had no idea it was there. So the homeowner never owned it. It remained ownerless, Switzerland, until Mr. Kitts found it. Finders, keepers, my friends, that takes us to the end of the class. What we've seen here today is that the laws of acquisition are very different from the laws of inheritance that we spoke about last week. Inheritance is natural. It's a river. It's the natural order of, of, of life in which things transfer ownership without knowledge, without, with, without even consent. It just, it just moves or not even moves. One generation takes the place of the previous generation and it's all, it all happens naturally. That's in inheritance law. When it comes to buying and selling, it's very different. It requires mindfulness. It, it, it requires 
das or dat, it requires awareness. If you have no awareness of a hidden treasure and no reasonable expectation that you should even have that awareness in the first place, it's like, not only I don't know about it, but I don't even know that I don't know about it. Like, I don't even know that I should have known about it because there's no way that I would have fathomed that there was a hidden treasure. If I would ask you, do you believe that there's, there's a hidden treasure right underneath the floor where you're sitting right now? Do you believe there's a hidden treasure there? You're like, no, but should I check? Until I ask the question, you're not even thinking about it. So there's no intellectual, psychological, there's no mental connection between you and that thing. So no, when you bought we're the house... We're all going to think that we have... We're all going to think we have hidden treasure now. Now you're going to think that to try to outsmart the system, but, the, but, the, but Halakha is going to say a reasonable person in a reasonable situation, did not have that, that intention. And therefore, when you, bought, when you paid for the house, when you saw it on Zillow, and you saw the description, it did not include, plus, there's a potential for treasure. Who knows? You know, let's, Zillow. The Zillow price is bumped up because maybe there's a treasure. Never happened. It didn't factor into the sale. It didn't factor into the mind of the seller. It didn't factor into the mind of the buyer. It didn't factor into the purchase price. It didn't factor into anything. Suddenly a worker happened to chance upon a treasure. Good for him. It's the workers. It remained ownerless, unless we know who the owner is, as we just defined. It remains ownerless until the person who finds it identifies it and takes possession of it. This is Jewish law, and I understand, and trust me, I understand very well that it runs counter to the way we think, but in Jewish law, acquisition is something very, very powerful because what we acquire is a sign from God that we are meant to work with it. And thus, if we, have no, if we don't know that it exists, and we have no reasonable expectation to even look for it, then how can, it, how can those sparks of divine energy be related to us if we don't even know that it's there, and we've never found it, and we're not even looking for it? It's the one who finds it. It's a sign from God that they're meant to deal with it, that they're meant to engage with it. And mixing a little Kabbalah into the halach here, I know, I know exactly what I'm doing here. I mean, I know, I know what it sounds like, and what it sounds like is exactly what I'm doing here, and that is that everything in life, when it comes to acquisition, when it comes to possession, everything that you have is meant to be yours, is meant for you to utilize for, for a higher purpose. If there's something that you have, but there's something hidden inside that thing that you don't even know it's there, then how can you lift it up? How can you elevate it for a higher purpose if you don't even know it's there, if you don't even know to look for it? And thus it remains ownerless. It remains waiting for the real owner to step up and find it. And whoever finds it, that's the real owner. Let's bring it back to one more point and we're going to conclude. Give me another 60 seconds. Last week we said that Torah is like an inheritance. That even if you don't know about it, even if you never studied it, it's still yours. It's still yours. And today we're learning something else. Torah is not only called our inheritance. Torah is also called our acquisition. There's different, there's different relationships that we have with Torah. There's Torah as our inheritance and Torah as our acquisition. So as an inheritance, even if you never studied it, even if you don't know about it, it's yours. But as an, but as an acquisition, you got to know about it. Yeah, acquisition, it's only yours if you know about it. So what's the message tonight? Study Torah. I know we're all doing it right now, but the message is here, let's study Torah, and the more we study, the more we acquire. So yes, inherently, all of Torah is ours as an inheritance, but as an acquisition. If I ask you, did you buy Torah? The question is, well, how much do you know? How much do you know? Like, how much you know is how much you bought, right? If you're unaware of it, then it's not, uh, it's not exactly the same thing. So with this, we conclude tonight's class, and what we've learned is laws of acquisition in Torah, in Judaism, in Halacha, in Talmud. 
And it's wild, and it's counterintuitive, and it's exhilarating, hopefully. And I hope you enjoyed tonight's class. Let me tell you about next week's class. Next week, we talk about possession being nine-tenths of the law. Is that true according to Jewish law? Who has the burden of proof in cases of disputed ownership? In cases where somebody is holding on to something, and another guy is saying, hey, that's mine. That guy has something that's mine. What's the, who has the burden of proof? How does he prove it, he or she? How do we deal with cases of disputed ownership when one party is holding on to the disputed item? Is possession really nine-tenths of the law? Are there exceptions to that rule? Find out next week as you be the judge rolls on. My friends, thank you for being part of this. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'm here for another three minutes for questions. All right, jump in. Pleasure, pleasure. Thanks for being here. Questions or comments? Yes, jump in. Kind of two questions. I know I lost my bracelet when I was in the yard. Yeah. Gardner comes, but I don't say anything. He finds the bracelet, and I see it. I say, oh, thank you, Rob. That's my lost bracelet. Puts it in his pocket, and he leaves. I guess halakhically he can. Nope. What if ahead of time? No, 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 he can't, he can't, he can't. The only time finders keepers is if you yeah. don't know and cannot find the owner. Ah. That's the only, the only time. We have to, it's, 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 it's a good question and it gives us an opportunity to, re, to re-emphasize this. The only time halacha says finders keepers is if you cannot find nor identify the original owner. If you know who the original owner was, then it remains in trust for that original owner. Or, or I'm sorry, or, or you give it back to the original owner. It's all, it's the, 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 all of this comes from the Mishnah. None of this is made up. It all goes back to the source. The source, the Mishnah, the Talmud talks about a very specific case. Somebody finds ancient treasure buried in an ancient property in ancient Israel upon which the finder can say to the, owner, the current owner of their house, it's not your treasure, it belongs to the ancient Canaanites. That is the only case that we know for sure. That's the precedent. The precedental case is the one where the original owners, the original hiders of the property, cannot be identified, nor found, nor um, contacted. In this case, we know who the owner is. We know she's looking for it. There is no excuse for the finder to keep it. On the contrary, there's a mitzvah of returning lost property. If you find something that someone else lost, you have a mitzvah to return it. We're only talking about a case where there's no original owner anymore. You cannot find it. There's no way to identify it. It's gone. It's, it's, it's buried treasure. How are you going to find it? Again, in the case of P. Dunn, uh, of, of Patrick Dunn, the envelopes that had his name on it, you do give it back to the estate because we know whose it is. Hashav Aveda, it's returning lost property. Of course you give it back. And it's part of the inheritance, even though Patrick Dunn is no longer alive. It's inheritance, his kids, the estate, it belongs to the estate. It's only a case where you can't, you don't know who the original party is. That's the only case where we talk about um, uh, the finder's keepers. But Doreen, you had another question. I think. Another co- a follow-up. No? No. No. Okay. No, that took care of it. That is, okay, good. All right, Mom. I have a a little bit of a question about the tin. Okay, what if the guy who got the tin last gave it to a worker? Yeah. And smelled the tin, and the worker found the silver. Yeah, it belongs to the worker. 
It belongs to the worker. It's the same. It's the same scenario. Finders keepers. That's the once you once you're in the finders that's keeper right. modality. That's right. that's exactly. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's the last guy. It's the, or the first one to discover it. He gets to keep Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure. Right. Pleasure, Judy. All right. Good. All right. I know we're late, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wish everybody a good night, Lila Tov. Thanks for joining. Don't forget tomorrow morning. Is, uh, tomorrow is the Fast of Esther. Tomorrow night is Purim. Megillah reading right here at Chabad in town at 8.15. Join us for the Megillah. BYOG, bring your own gragger. I'm kidding, you don't have to. we got plenty of graggers. And um, Thursday as well, Thursday afternoon, 5.30, there is another Megillah reading and Purim party, Purim feast. So join us and let's celebrate together. Wishing everybody Chag Purim Sameach, Happy Purim, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Lala Tov. Bye.